0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by TheGreatCourses.com, where you can watch or listen to thousands of lectures from top professors and experts. Get up to 80% off select classes by visiting TheGreatCourses.com slash galaxy.
1: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide
0: to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Curtley Hello and welcome to episode 177 of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show we'll be discussing the new anthology The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, edited by our producer John Joseph Adams. And for the first time in the history of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy, John and I are recording in the same room. So John, welcome to the show. Good to be here. And so John and I don't get to see each other much these days, since I live in New York and he lives in California. But this week John's in town because he's serving as a judge for the National Book Awards in the Young Adult category, and he'll be attending their Gala award ceremony on Wednesday, so that's very exciting. And while he's here, John's done a few bookstore appearances. So on the 9th, he and I appeared at Forbidden Planet to discuss the best American science fiction and fantasy with Joe Hill, Seanan McGuire, Carmen Maria Machado, and Jess Rowe. And we'll have the audio from that in just a bit. But first I wanted to ask John a few questions about the book. So John, first of all, just give us a bit of background on the Best American series. Uh well the Best American series uh started about like a
2: hundred years ago or so with uh best American short stories and it's been uh publishing um you know annually ever since. You know, at some point they expanded to have additional volumes. So in addition to best American short stories, there's like, there's best American mysteries, best American essays, uh, best American, there's even best American infographics. Um, there's also ones like on sports writing and travel writing and things like that. Uh, but until now they haven't ever had a science fiction or fantasy volume, which of course we all feel is long overdue. Science fiction and fantasy has had this long, uh, history of, uh, short stories and short stories have been so vitally important to the field that, uh, um, it seems like you know, they would have uh, noticed that that science fiction uh, and fantasy was so um, focused on short stories before now. But um, I'm just glad that uh, I get the opportunity to be the first one to, you know, bring this to the Best American series.
0: Right, right. And the Best American series was the series that I used in college. And I've always had the sense that this was absolutely the most prestigious venue for short stories in America. Do you agree with that? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's generally how it's uh, thought to be. Uh, I actually also um, had a
2: creative writing class and we had a you know, the, the latest volume of Best American Short Stories was a, one of our textbooks. Um, actually, I have kind of have a, a funny story with it. So, like, the professor assigned the book and, and, you know, we read the various stories and, and he asked for our opinions. And so, um, I had read the story by, uh, E. Annie Prohl, um, called the, I think it's called the Red-Eyed Steer or something like that. And, um, so at the time in college, I, I read it and I didn't like it. And, um, the professor actually, uh, said that I was exposing myself to be a bit of a rube. Uh, because <laughs> I didn't like the story. Um, and so I, I actually went back and reread it, um, years later. Um, and, uh, and I could like read it and see like, the, I mean, the prose is very wonderful. And, and I mean, I really enjoyed like large parts of it. Um, and it's almost a genre story actually. Um, but it's almost like. And, and and I still didn't like it, but I don't think that I could have articulated why back then. And it was more of like an instinctual thing or something, Um sort of like as a genre reader, I was reading it as a genre reader. And it's like, it fails completely as like a genre story. But, um you know, Uh so I think that's probably why I didn't like it. And if that makes me a, a bit of a rube, well, oh well.
0: Well, so have you ever thought about, Calling that professor and saying, I'm editing a Best American series now, so who's the Rube now?
2: (laughs) That would be great, except that I actually don't even remember his name, (laughs) which is kind of the best 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 situation, I think. The best revenge. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right, well, so tell us a little bit about how this Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy came about.
2: Uh, well, actually, so my, my former agent, uh, was Joe Monty, uh, and he's only my former agent because he left to become a book editor. Um, but, uh, he had, uh, talked to me about like my career and stuff at some point, And, uh, he just brought up the idea of doing like a, a year's best anthology. And, you know, I had said, well, you know, I, w- I didn't really want to do one, um, unless we could do like one that would be, uh, really big time, you know, cause I, cause I know like there are a ton of work and I know that some of them haven't actually sold that well. So I didn't want to do one that was like not going to be worth all the effort. Um, And so he said, well, why don't we pitch it to the best American series? And I'm like, well, uh, I mean, sure. I mean, that's great. I mean, I, I, I don't think they're going to do it, you know? And so, um, so I wrote a proposal and I actually, I thought it was like the best proposal I'd ever written. Like I, I, I read it and uh, like tried to divorce myself from the fact that I wrote it and I was like reading, I was like, Oh, like actually kind of gave myself chills. It was like, Oh, that's exactly right. And I showed it to my wife and she had like the same reaction, Um, I think she actually teared up a little bit when she was reading it. And so I was like, Hey, I think I did it, you know? Um, and if anything's going to convince them, it's this. And so Joe sent it to Houghton Mifflin and, um, and they passed on it. And then, so, um, and I I don't know that they gave any particular reason. They just, it wasn't the right time to expand the series, whatever. Um, and then, so the next year he tried it again and they also said no. Uh, I, I think he may have tried three times. I can't remember, but they... You know, every time Joe sent it, they said no. And then Joe retired from agenting, became an editor. And so I got a new agent. I got Seth Fishman. Um, and, uh, so the first thing Seth did was sell Best American to Houghton Mifflin for me. And, um, and it's funny. So it, it all kind of came about because we were talking about my career. Um, and, uh, he asked me, was there any anthology proposal that was like the one that got away? You know, like the, the thing that I, I really wanted to sell and I couldn't. And so I told him about this. And so he took a look at it and he, um, and I don't even think I tweaked it or at all. I just, he just like sent it back and I don't know what he did on his end to convince them, but you know, first thing he did for me was sell that. And so, uh, you know, that was pretty awesome.
0: And so I'm, I'm imagining that you liked this proposal so much because it, captured how much you love science fiction and fantasy how important you think it is is that kind of what it it was yeah basically i mean um and uh and it was
2: very passionate and it was uh you know i have this thing that i kept saying um since then is that um and and, and it's in the proposal but it's like you know i feel like i and, and other science fiction fans uh sort of believe that like the best science fiction or fantasy is on par or better than anything written in any other genre and and my goal with the best american science fiction and fantasy was to prove that so yeah, I mean, that, that's what I really, I think, uh, made me feel like I had achieved exactly what I was trying to do with the proposal. And, and I hope that readers who read the book can, will feel like I've, I've achieved that with the actual book as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so tell us about the process. How did you end up with the
0: stories in this book?
2: Uh, so basically the, so I'm the series editor and Joe Hill is the guest editor. And so how it works is, um, basically we work in a vacuum separately from each other. Like the guest editor in this case is Joe Hill. Um, he doesn't have to do anything all year because he's waiting for me to narrow the field. And then that's when his work begins. So, um, my job as series editor is to try to read everything I can find, um, that qualifies for best American science fiction and fantasy, which, uh, in this case is, um, or in the case of the best American series, it's like, um, it has to be less than novella length. So like under 17,500 words. So, you know, anything shorter than that. It has to be science fiction or fantasy. Uh, it has to be by, um, an American writer or a Canadian writer or a writer who, uh, is like a, a citizen of Canada or America. So like if they're American, but they live in Europe, that's fine. But, um, or like, and then in the case of like somebody like Neil Gaiman, who was British by birth, but he lives here, that's fine. Um, and so, you know, I have to try to read all of these things that meet these various criteria. And then I have to decide what are the best 80 stories in this case, since it's uh science fiction and fantasy in the title, I wanted the best stories to be equally represented by both genres so that people who like one genre over the other, they're going to get the same sort of, um, representation of both genres. And so, um, so I had to pick the best 80 stories and I picked the best, uh, 40, best 40 fantasy stories and the best 40 science fiction stories. Um, once I came up with that list, I gave them to Joe Hill and then, um, we stripped all of the identifying information off of the stories. So all he had is the title and the, and the story text. He doesn't know who the authors were or, uh, where the stories appeared. Um, and then he would read all the stories and then he would come up with his top 10 or his, uh, his top 20, um, including a top 10 of both science fiction and fantasy. So uh, again, I, I had him, you know, I had a rule that it had to be 50, 50, uh, between the both genres.
0: So, so when you say that you, your job was to read everything, what does that actually mean? How many stories did right. you actually read? Um, it was like a couple thousand stories. Uh,
2: you know, I, I say in the introduction, like I, 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 was diligently logging every single story that I read for a while, but then it just got to be too arduous, um, to keep doing that. And so when I stopped counting, I had logged about like 2,600 stories and that was about halfway through the year. So I'm, you know, it could be as many as twice that. Like I don't know how, how far along I was in terms of like the overall quantity when I stopped counting, but, um, you know several thousand stories. Um, and, uh, and also I had some helpers who were, uh, um, helping me out, uh, uh, to read some of the smaller publications that, um, you know, maybe like I I know of, and I've looked at before and I know enough about them that um, they're not terribly likely to have something that I'm going to think is one of the best, but I do want to consider them. And so I figure I'll, I'll have a helper read it. And then anything that's actually really good, will rise to the top that way. And then I'll make sure to take a look at it. Um, and I also, uh, I sort of take a look at social media and keep tabs on that to see like what sort of stories are being talked about a lot. Like, um, cause things like that tend to you know, not necessarily go viral per se, but, you know, enough people talk about them, and you feel that there's sort of a critical mass happening that like, oh, this is something I should definitely look at. And so I always try to look at things like that whenever I, I notice them.
0: Alright, cool. So tell us about this panel that we're about to hear.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, as Dave mentioned, uh, I'm in New York to, because I'm, I was a judge for the National Book Awards this year. And so, um, I extended my trip so I could do some bookstore events. And, uh, we did an event at Forbidden Planet, which is like a science fiction fantasy comic book, uh, store. Um, so it was kind of an unusual setup and, and, uh, uh, it, like the store doesn't really have space to do a, uh, a panel discussion because, like, there's nowhere for people to sit. So basically we were sitting together and doing a signing and, uh, Joe Hill just decided to like, Hey, let's just do a periscope, um, chat a- after we do the signing. And it was all sort of impromptu and, uh, but it actually came together really well, like surprisingly well, given that, um, it was kind of unplanned. And, and actually the audio sounds remarkably good considering that. It was literally just captured by Joe Hill's iPhone or whatever. Um and uh so yeah, um so that's what it was. And and it was just like a panel discussion like you would expect to hear on Geeks
0: Guide. So and now you're about to hear it on Geeks Guide. <laughs> yeah, and so we'll get to that right after this word from our sponsor. So today's show is brought to you by the Great Courses. Watch or listen to thousands of lectures on over five hundred subjects. Each course is taught by top professors and leading experts from the most respected institutions in the world. And our featured course this week is called Thinking About Cybersecurity, From Cybercrime to Cyber Warfare." If you listened to our interview with Mark Goodman in episode 142, you were probably alarmed to hear how easily hackers can watch you through your laptop camera or crash your car into a wall. In fact, John and I both have pieces of tape over our laptop cameras right now because we both read Mark's book. Cybersecurity is a huge issue these days, and it's only going to get more important in the coming years. Thinking about cybersecurity is taught by Paul Rosenweig, who lectures on cybersecurity at the George Washington University Law School, and who formerly served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. The 18 lectures cover every aspect of cybersecurity, from Stuxnet to Botnets to hacktivists, and the video of the lectures features great production values and plenty of high-quality graphics and visual aids. Then once you're up to speed on cybersecurity, check out some of the other classes from The Great Courses, including geeky stuff like Masterpieces of the Mind, Literature's Most Fantastic Works, and Medieval Heroines in History and Legend. And The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special limited-time offer. Eight of their courses, including Thinking About Cybersecurity, are available now at up to 80% off their regular price. To take advantage of this special offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash galaxy. That's thegreatcourses.com slash galaxy. Don't forget, go to thegreatcourses.com slash galaxy. All right, so now here's our panel with Joe Hill, Seanan McGuire, Carmen Maria Machado, and Jess Rowe. I want to thank Forbidden Planet for hosting us, and I also want to thank Mark Oshiro of markreads.net for filming this. Mark was using the Periscope app on Joe's phone, and viewers were watching us and submitting questions, so you'll hear Mark's voice on here as well reading out those questions. And this was a live event, so there is some background noise, but once we get going, people quiet it down a lot, so stick with it. And so now here's our panel.
1: Hi, I'm Joe Hill, I'm at Forbidden Planet, uh, New York City, for Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy.
2: Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams, I'm the series editor
0: of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and I'm here too. Hi guys, I'm David Barr Curley, I'm the host of the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, and I'll be moderating this conversation.
3: I'm Carmen Maria Machado, and I have a story in Best American uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy called Help Me Follow My Sister Into
4: the Land of the Dead. I'm Seanan McGuire, and I have a story in Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy called Each to Each. This is just funny.
5: I'm Jess Rao, and I have a story in Best American Science
0: Fiction and Fantasy called The Empties. Excellent. Okay, so John, the editor of this book, yeah. my first question is In the introduction, you say that. This book is you're helping to spread the gospel of science fiction. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was an interesting choice of words. So why don't you just tell people a little bit about why do you think of this as spreading the gospel? <laughs> well, uh, because the thing is, like, science fiction and
2: fantasy tends to uh sort of uh gather together like in its little corner of the world and uh and and, and a lot of people who aren't intimately familiar with the genre, they uh you know, they never encounter it. And so um one of the things that uh the best american brand sort of does is it opens us up to a larger audience out there who maybe want to read science fiction and fantasy but they don't know where to begin or they they haven't ever like you know just known where to start and uh uh with the best american science fiction and fantasy starting now i
1: feel like we have the chance to uh you know reach reach new readers that we haven't uh, reached before so i disagree i disagree <laughs> with every single word he just said there's not a thing he said that i think is true there was There was a review of the book. It mostly got very favorable reviews. There was a review of the book um, that said, this is a great anthology. But when is a great anthology a great anthology? That was an actual line in the review, which I just found this completely enigmatic line. Like, But the thrust of the review was that the book was aiming for the literary mainstream, that instead of looking in towards people who are already science fiction and fantasy fans, it was looking outward towards people who aren't science fiction and fantasy fans, trying to make new converts essentially, and and I think that that was completely wrong because I think the idea that this this small little subset of readers that love science fiction and fantasy is completely false and has been false for probably over a decade. That in fact the the instruments of science fiction and fantasy, the tools of the you know the stuff in that genre toolbox has been out there in the literary world and being explored for at least a decade now, in work by people like Jonathan Lethem and Michael Chabon and Margaret Atwood and on and on down the list. Cormac McCarthy, The Road, um, and so this idea somehow that there's us and them. There's the science fiction and fantasy fans, and there's there's literary readers, and somehow we're looking outwards towards literary readers. I mean, I'm I'm sorry. Science fiction and fantasy is part of the literary mainstream and has been for a while.
0: That's what I meant to say. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's let's move on to these guys over here. So, Carmen, your story originally appeared in an anthology called Help Fund My Robot Army. Yes. Uh, Tell us about that.
3: Well, um, so I actually had this idea to do a Kickstarter story for a while. I'm kind of a um, form vampire, so I'm really interested in forms of prose that cover non-traditional ways of storytelling. So whenever I see a new form, I get really excited and think, how can I use this to my advantage? How can I write a story in the shape of whatever this new thing is? And when Kickstarter sort of came about, I was like, hmm, I should write a Kickstarter story and had not gotten around to it. And then John reached out to me and said, would you like to write a Kickstarter story for my Kickstarter anthology? And I said, <laughs> yes, I would like to do that. So just actually, <laughs> um, okay. it was actually like, like an idea that I had for a while, and then I had the opportunity to do it, and the
0: rest is history. And so what was the biggest challenge about telling a story in the format of a Kickstarter pitch?
3: Well, the thing about a Kickstarter is that unlike certain, some forms, you know, there's like pages, right? So when you're at a Kickstarter page, there's like material that's sort of being laid out like in front of you visually on the screen. And there's like tabs you can click on. So there's like this sort of depth to the media that like is hard to necessarily reproduce just like sort of in page format. So I had to decide like what am I using and not using from that form? How do I present the information? Things like the updates, like, do I present them, like, sort of chronologically like you would imagine they would be or, like, backwards like they actually are in a Kickstarter? So there was this sort of just, like, decision process I had to make about what I would keep and what I would toss and sort of how I would put that information on the page. Um, But it was fun. It was really, really fun to do.
5: So
0: when you finished the story, did you say, oh, yeah, this is definitely going in a Best (laughs) Science (laughs) Fiction of the Year anthology?
3: No, I was actually super shocked when I got the email that it was in the anthology. I mean, I, I love the story. I'm really proud of it. Um, I think I managed to, like, tap this this thing that I, I – even when I started, I didn't quite realize, like, I think sort of the emotions in it. Like, it wasn't really kind of what I was going for, and I and I ended up – like, the emotional well that I tapped was surprising to me. Um, but I think yeah. it, it worked out really – like, I, I, I was like, I wrote it, and then I showed it to my partner, and she was like, oh, oh, my God. And I was like, oh.
1: Oh <laughs> yeah, right. uh, you start goofing off when, when you right. when you set out, you're like, "Oh, I'll do a short story and it will be like a Kickstarter page, right. and it will be so funny. And then you get to the end and you're like, "Ah oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> that is exactly what the process was like.
3: Yeah, so, so I had a lot of fun with it, but yeah, it did it did, was this really intense process. and then I was, of course excited, but also like, oh wow, my little story went so far. <laughs> um, so yeah, can I jump in and ask a weird question? Does, does,
1: does form dictate outcome? So, like, if you do a story in the format of a Kickstarter, you know, page, is it destined to be tragedy?
6: Hmm. <laughs> Whoa.
1: Uh, <laughs> I mean, no, because perhaps I because, that, because many Kickstarters do end in tragedy. <laughs> okay. Well, so
3: in, in my story, the idea is that the Kickstarter is, has started and is only, but like, it hasn't ended yet. So, like, it, mm. whether or not, like, the, the date in it, she hasn't reached, she's just like, well, I got to put it on my credit card and hope this Kickstarter works out. And then she goes ahead on her journey. Um. So, in this case, like that end of it is open. Though in her story, right? I don't want to give too much away, but read the story. <laughs> but like, but yeah. So, like, but of course, I mean, it would depend on like if it was successful. I mean, the the original story that started that anthology, Kathy's story, um, right? It was, it was like failed Kickstarter, so that actually kind of like you know sort of dictated it. But it was a funny story, but it was sort of a sort of tragedy, you know, because his, his his Kickstarter didn't get fulfilled. So um I think it really depends on. I mean, I feel like you could have turned that form in any direction. I just sort of the one that worked best for
0: me. So, right, Cool. And So, so, Sean, tell us about your story, because I think you, you asked a friend for an idea, and I, they said uh, women do better on submarines.
4: I actually submarines. asked the editor for an idea, um, because I, I come from the fanfic minds. I am a child of the fanfiction minds. And when you're working there, a huge amount of what you're doing is prompted. Other people say, well, what I really want to see is this. And so you write kind of to spec, even before you're writing to spec. Uh, this means I'm, I'm very fast and very efficient if you tell me what I'm doing, but I will just stand in the middle of a field shouting about crows for like a <laughs> week if you don't tell me where to start. And uh, so when Christy Yen, who was the guest editor of Women Destroy Science Fiction, uh, which was published by Lightspeed Magazine, solicited me to be one of her headline authors for the Kickstarter. Uh, we're just going to stay thematically on Kickstarters tonight, <laughs> apparently. Uh, when she asked me to be one of her, of her marquee authors to encourage people to give her money, I was like, well, that's great, but could you tell me what the hell I'm writing about? Because women destroying stuff is really general. And uh, she said, well, women do better on submarines. And I like mermaids. So I wrote about genetically engineered horror mermaids being put essentially into indentured servitude to the U.S. military, because that's the kind of cheerful human being I am. Um, and, And that was fun. I enjoyed that. I like anything that lets me mutate people horribly for my own gain.
0: So, so why do women do better on submarines?
4: Uh, mostly because we're trained not to beat the shit out of each other for no good reason. <laughs> so we're much better at, like, Carmen and I just met and we're already almost in each other's laps. <laughs> and we're not <laughs> punching each other yet. And that is essentially why women do better on submarines. We are trained to seek nonviolent forms of problem resolution from a very young age. It's a socialization thing um, that we don't get to choose. We don't opt into this. But they have found that it means that, Western women tend to do better on submarines than Western men, yet we keep giving the submarines to Western men because of (laughs) some small threats I made about torpedoing San Diego.
0: (laughs) You also said, Sean, that another one of your interests is abyssopelagic marine life. And that that also played into this story?
4: Yes. There are so many horrible things at the bottom of the sea, and all of them want to eat your face. It's amazing. We don't need Cthulhu. Screw Cthulhu, the viper fish. It's basically a delivery mechanism for teeth.
6: Okay.
1: Do you remember when James Cameron went down to the deepest place on the planet? You know how awesome it would have been? He's like down there, and he's got the camera. And he's like, there's nothing down there. Wait, what was that? And he turns okay. the camera, and there's like something. And then the Megalodon opens its mouth, and he's like, ah! Static.
6: I was hoping for like, that would have so been the
1: worst ending of all time. Oh yeah, no. It would have meant no Avatar
6: two. I'm sure people have mixed feelings.
1: I'm sure people have mixed feelings about that. But but if you're gonna go out, that would have been the best possible way to go out ever.
4: That's how I always feel about those Bigfoot hunter things on sci-fi. Like I'll watch them just out of hopes that one of them is going to end in screaming and static, because that would make me so happy. I would totally believe in Bigfoot if I just saw him eat somebody's face off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Alright cool, so Jess, let's get you in here. So you say about your story that you didn't s- sort of set out to write science fiction, but that the world is becoming it's hard it's getting hard not to write about science fiction because the world is becoming such a science fictional place. Could you say a little bit more about that? Um sure. You know, the story I, I was I was working on a book of short stories
5: that were all had some metafictional elements, so they're all stories about stories. And I just had this idea I I, I live in Vermont every summer and I had this idea of of uh, what would Vermont be like after the apocalypse because there's so much sort of local food and agriculture and all that mm. sort of thing. And so, you know, this was just sort of an idle idea, and then I started, you know, trying to make more and more of it. But my idea was it would be an apocalypse where people just sat around and talked about other apocalypses. <laughs> so they'd say, you know, is it like Red Dawn? Is it like this? You know, what kind of apocalypse is it? And, you know, I so I wanted it to be funny, and then the further and further I got with it, the more it, I felt it sort of turning into an actual dystopian world and not just a joke about like kale chips and people, people you know, going crazy because they don't have Pinterest anymore. You know, I, I got all the, I think I got every single joke I wanted to get in the piece, but it also turned into a real story.
0: So, I mean, do you feel that your study of post apocalyptic media has prepared you if we actually encounter a real apocalypse?
5: No,
6: <laughs> you know. I mean, no. someone,
1: someone way smarter than me said recently. You know, the most unrealistic, hard to believe thing about zombie movies at this age is the idea that no one was prepared for the zombie to
6: come. <laughs> you know, that at this point,
1: at this point, everyone has seen so many zombie movies mm-hmm. and. Watch so much zombie TV that clearly when people start rotting, people start staggering around, biting people, you you know what's going on. You're not like, oh, my God, what's happening? You're like, oh, I thought this
6: this was coming. (laughs) You have to go full AU. Yeah. Because
1: everything
4: in media diverges after after *Night of the Living Dead*. Everything, like, think about what horror looks like in a world where zombie media never existed.
1: Yeah, but of course, of course, *Night of the Living Dead*. Um, you know, um, in some ways, was probably inevitable because of *I Am Legend*. Because *I Am Legend* was essentially the same story, but with vampires instead of zombies in the in the forties and. Uh, you know, so in some ways it's, uh,
4: So get in a time machine and shoot Matheson before he can publish and, uh, I Am Legend and we change the course of human history. We'd
1: miss a lot of good books. We really movies. would. Yeah, it'd be a bummer. Mm. Do we get... Are people periscoping questions? Yes. Oh, what are we seeing? A uh, good question. Do you think
5: science fiction is caught up with science or is it the other way around? You want, feel one. One? <laughs> you want to field
1: that one? You want to start? Yeah. Jess looks weak and vulnerable. Ask <laughs> him. <laughs> That, Do you
5: think thing? science fiction is caught up to science, or is it the other way around? Oh, caught up to science. <clears throat> um, that's an excellent question. I, I don't know. I don't read, you know, so much science fiction that I would be able to say. But things like, you know, multiverses and wormholes yeah. and things like that, I think are very, very are still very, very hard to conceptualize and very hard to put into narrative. So I would say maybe not. Like the Higgs boson story, I don't think has yet been been written. I would
1: say, I would say yes, because of what we're doing right now. <laughs> you know, I mean, we are having a video conference with however many people are tuned into the the broadcast on my oh, telephone. You on know my you telephone. Know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it's not, if it's, if it's not, I'm going to be disappointed. But, but, you know, here we are. I mean, we are having a live conversation with people all over the world on a telephone. Mm-hmm. Um, that well, feels pretty science fictional to me. Well, and also just like, if you think about like Douglas Adams and like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy,
2: it's like you're holding the Hitchhiker's Guide to <laughs> the Galaxy in your hand and you're filming us with it. And,
1: you know. <laughs> you know. You know, on Sunday morning, the New York Times delivered me a cardboard VR machine. <laughs> you know, a virtual reality thing, and I plug my phone into it, and suddenly I'm like, oh my god, I'm like, you know, in a virtual re- and it was made out of cardboard and let you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and it made me think, it made me think, the future is fun and cheap. You know, that we've got. Guys- <laughs> it is, it's like, you know, I have an Apple TV, it costs 150 bucks, which is, you know, it's, 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 that's some change, but it's not that expensive in the grand scheme of things, you know, not compared to like healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, the future is fun and cheap. The past is miserable and expensive. You know, the past is fossil fuels. You know, the past is the Confederate flag. Um, the past is all the things we haven't, you know, we haven't managed to deal with that we're going to continue paying for for the next hundred years. So well, The
4: problem, though, is that the future is not equally distributed, which means that science fiction will always be in a state of both ahead of and behind the future. You know, we talk about, virtual reality cardboard machines. I came here from San Francisco on a plane. It was five hours of sitting in a very comfortable chair, drinking free wine. That is magic. That is what the science fiction books promised me. But one in six Americans still doesn't have the internet. The digital divide exists and it's worsening every day. And it is so difficult to even conceive of how poorly distributed the future is. Especially if you're standing on the, I have it side of the Gulf. It's confusing. I, I've had people look baffled when I say that one in six Americans, because that is literally inconceivable to them.
1: I, I did a panel. I did a panel in England about the apocalypse. Jess would have. just would fit right in. But but I did it. There was uh, Pat Cadigan was on the panel, and she she mentioned that William Gibson quote the future is here; it's just not evenly distributed. And then she said, "The apocalypse is here; it's just not evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's not it's not here for us. Mm-hmm. But if you are in the fifth ward from you know New Orleans, the apocalypse already paid you a visit. Mm-hmm. If you are a refugee running from the war in the Sudan, you know the, the, you've already seen the apocalypse. It's happening now. So um, yeah, that's, I don't know if that really answers the question, but I think
5: so." <laughs> Uh, with the popularization of science fiction, do you think an anthology still
1: matters?
4: Huh. I like eating, so totally yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> buy our John, uh,
6: yeah, Go ahead, yeah.
1: bring it over here, John. Repeat the question Sorry. so people can hear. Because I don't know how well the question repeat the question it was. With the popularization yeah. of of science fiction, do anthologies still matter?
6: Yeah, I
2: mean, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously, if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing this, but, um, you know, uh, the thing is, it's like anthologies are a way, or like, are a gateway drug in a lot of ways. You know, uh, people can pick up an anthology based on the theme, and they don't know, they may not know half the authors in there, or they might not know any of the authors in there, or maybe they know one author, and, uh, and then they might discover all these other great authors, uh, that they never know were out there, and they may not have sampled their books or, or, or whatever. And, um, and also, I think there's just, um, you know, you just need, you need a place that you can tell shorter stories. I mean, there's magazines, but um, you also need them in book form as well. And, you know, people need to be able to get, you know, because you know, like, uh, like a lot of the magazines these days are digital. And so like, you know, but for all those kids who are just going to the library or something, you need to be able to go on the, pick up a book off the shelf and like read a bunch of wonderful stories. So, and I mean, like, I think a lot of people here, like, you know, sort of got their start writing short stories. I mean, you know, your yep, first I couple of short stories, uh, I mean, I think Sean and, or you published books
6: first,
1: but, uh, she's the outlier. So, um. <laughs> but, but they are really old-fashioned discovery engines. You know, it's like this is how we discovered stories before we had Google. Yeah. You know, and Goodreads was you bought an anthology that had three writers you loved in it, and then you discovered seventeen more writers who could bring some of that could, or maybe did something completely different, and you said this is exciting too. Yeah.
2: Well, and I think uh, short stories are really
1: vitally important
2: because it's like an experimental ground that writers can play with and they can try new and exciting things that isn't as risky as trying to do it in a novel. Like, you know, if you, if you have a novel career and, you know, you have to deliver a book to a publisher, like if you want to try something radically different that you've never tried before, you can't, it's very, very risky for you to do that in your novel. Whereas if you try it in a short story and it fails, it's not that big of a deal. Right. It's like, you know. I mean, maybe you'd be disappointed in it. People will be disappointed in you, or something. But it's not that big of a risk as opposed to failing with a novel, which might ruin your career. Right. So, um, I, I think that's also important because you know it, it allows writers that. You know, place to experiment and and anyway, I, mean, I think that's where most uh, I think where the most innovative stuff actually happens is in short fiction. And so I think without anthologies being around, uh, there wouldn't be as much of it.
1: So I feel like I should say I disagree with him completely. <laughs> to spend the night hammering in his self-image. You know, <laughs> if, I can, if I can destroy him emotionally and psychologically before we're done.
0: Well, I have a question I wanted to ask sure. both of you guys. So both of you in your introductions yeah. give as the sort of story you can look forward to in this book, the woman giving birth to a gelatinous cube. Uh huh. And so I'm just curious, what was it about that story that makes it <laughs> such a perfect uh, encapsulation? of What readers can look forward to in this book? Well, it wasn't a gelatinous cube. It was a cube. I thought it was gelatinous. Maybe, maybe,
2: it, I was maybe it was. Maybe it was, kind of was like gelatinous. A cube of big
1: jello. Big jello cube. Yeah, I guess I yeah. thought it was
2: solid, but maybe it was gelatinous. I don't know. I have to reread it. But um, you know, well, it's like it's like I disagree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was
6: gelatinous. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the thing is, like, a lot of people when you hear the word fantasy, like, they assume like epic fantasy, like Trance. fantasy, like Lord of the Lord of the Rings and such. Of course. Uh, yeah. And and so, like, that story is a really great way of illustrating, like, fantasy, like, that it encompasses so much more. Because it's, like, it's one of those things where it's, like, the rules of physics and such are what, you know, what you believe is possible. Just, like, in one line, the author, like, turns this it misses. all away. And it's, like, no, actually, you know, people suddenly start giving birth to geometric shapes instead of babies. And so it's, like, that's, like, such a perfect illustration of, like, where we can go in fantasy that people don't really stop to realize that I think that's why we both, you know, fixated on that.
1: I think, I think short stories, short fiction, novels too are always thought experiments. Mm. On some levels, they may be very small, personal, intimate thought experiments, but mm. sometimes, sometimes they go big. Um, you know, uh, I think about the Library of Babel by Bourget and, you know, the idea of a library that has every book that's ever been written and every book that ever will be written and every book that won't be written and books that make no sense. And it's just this endless library. And it was this interesting thought experiment about what, a, what a place like that would be like. And I think, you know, the same way about that story, it's a perfect example of what science fiction and fantasy can do in its almost purest form, which is just, what is the nature of the relationship between mother and child? Um, what does it mean to, you know, to love your children? What, did, what do you need to get from your children to love them? Um, what is that all about? What is parenting all about? And so, you know, they imagine, this guy imagined, you know, a child that is nothing like any human child we recognize, and then uses that as the stick to poke at this big, you know, this big, fascinating
0: idea. Also, another question I want to ask Jess. You said that this story is the first story you've written that you had readers requesting a sequel to it. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you could talk about why do you think that this story in particular, people wanted a sequel and is people wanting a sequel is that a, a goal that people should have as writers or not?
5: No.
6: I don't uh
5: Because, I mean, when I teach, when I, I teach creative writing, that's part of what I do, and I always tell my students they should never submit to the workshop anything that's not finished in their eyes, because um, before, if if they submit something before it's finished, then as readers, we're just going to keep saying, uh, we're just going to make up our own end. So, you know, I, I think you always want to aim for something that's dramatically cool. In this story in particular, I think because it ends sort of just as the massive invasion is beginning... I think a lot of people really were very unhappy with this sense of they wanted to know what happened to Vermont. Yeah, I think what that's happens the best thing. what happens to the end. You know, I don't, I don't even know. want to contemplate what happens. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I also heard something once where a guy said, um, I "Forget who said said it." Someone said, "You know, one great place to stop a story is when whatever the reader can imagine is more interesting." Yeah, you reach the sure. point where whatever the reader can imagine would sure. actually be more interesting than whatever sure. the writer would do next. Sure. Whatever. You know, and and not to like totally geek out, but I always thought that one of the great powers of the Star Wars films was not the films themselves, but when you were 12 years old, you had the action figures and the stories you would invent between yeah. the stories, mm-hmm. your own personal interstitial, mm-hmm. your own fan fiction, which then, you know, you're telling yourself the story. So then when the second film comes out three years later, you have this tremendous emotional investment. Even though what you're really invested in, isn't the story you saw, but the stories you told yourself. You know? Do so we have any questions from the audience that Carmen?
5: Yes. You for
6: Carmen?
5: Oh, you look at me. I thought you meant behind <laughs> uh, Yeah. Um, uh, someone asked if they wanted to know what your favorite, and it has to be, indefensibly bad horror movie <laughs> Ooh,
6: Yeah.
3: I and mean, we could
5: do everyone, but well, indefensibly bad.
3: Indefensibly bad. Yeah, because bad is
5: subjective, but something you know, like, this is actually just awful.
4: Uh, 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 can you ask somebody else first? Okay. <laughs> Does anyone have an answer ready?
2: Sean <laughs> oh, must have the
4: most indefensibly bad horror movie that I will watch again and again. And you're gonna have to see it now, Mark. Aren't oh you my. lucky? Because you said those words. It's called Terror Vision. <laughs> There's a theme song. It goes. Uh, uh, ooh. Terrific. It's as bad as it sounds. It's about an alien that beams in through this family's satellite dish and proceeds to devour someone here's seen it. it, proceeds to devour everyone in the house. It starts with the dog and then it eats the kids and then it eats mom and dad. But after it's eaten you, it can make a replica of your head on the end of one of its tentacles. So it's like, hey kids, come in for dinner. I'm not a giant tentacle monster. And then the kids come in because the kids are not very bright. And then they get eaten by the giant tentacle monster. And then Everyone gets eaten by the giant tentacle. Everyone. It just eats everyone. And it turns out that it was an alien prison transfer. <laughs>
6: there are no spoilers for Terror Vision. There is only mercifully
4: sparing you that moment where the hypnotic theme song comes on and you're like, yes, this is a good life choice. It's not a good life choice, Miriam. It's not. Have you seen Terror Vision?
1: No. I'll send you
4: a copy. No, and, I was just, and
1: I was just thinking like, the indefensibly bad horror film that that I loved, I don't know, mostly I love good... I mean, like, first of all, I've never seen a bad horror film. They were all awesome. <laughs> I mean,
6: like, every single one I've ever seen was just,
1: 50, was just completely <laughs>
6: awesome. Um... So, I don't know. That's a Do you tough have one. one. That's really tough. I did
3: think once. I went this phase when I was like in my early 20s where I wanted to watch all the Leprechaun movies and I got <laughs> to the one where he's in space and there's this amazing scene where the alien Hello. queen, apparently in this in the universe of this world, aka the writer's room, they were like, you have to get her to expose her breasts for some reason. <laughs> so the reason is that to commit people to death, she like shows you her breasts and then you know you must be executed. So there was like a scene where she just like pull her shirt open to like tell someone who would be executed. And it was amazing. <laughs> like, but it's it's terrible it's terrible. It's pretty terrible.
1: So they ran out of footage in in, in the Howling Two. And so they <laughs> fill about they fill about three and a half minutes with this repeated loop of Sybil Shepherd ripping off her
6: tongue.
1: It was just like industrial rock and howling Howling <laughs> And it goes over and, and you're like is there more story? (laughs) Like, is this, and and so you get three minutes of this loop of her ripping off her top, then they roll the credits. (laughs) And they're like, <laughs> what what did I just watch? <laughs> you know, and so that was that was but I would never wa- I didn't like it. I would never watch it. Again.
3: <laughs> I would watch Levercon in Space when I would watch it. <laughs> I, I watched terror about twenty times.
2: Anyone else? Uh I don't uh I don't actually like bad movies uh, that that are like I know are bad. It's like, you know, um there's a... Uh, so there's a movie called Tales from the Crypt: Demon Night, which everyone else in the world seems to hate, but I actually love it. And I, I don't know, like I have a hard time saying that it's an indefensibly bad movie. For instance, you know, like yeah. because I love it, and like I don't know that I could actually identify one that's like, oh yeah, no, no, that's actually objectively terrible, but I love it. It's like, no, I think it's actually good. Like I don't understand why everyone doesn't love it, love this movie.
5: Um, but yeah, so. Hmm. Good boy, Jeff. Uh, the movie Man Bites Dog. Uh, it's a Belgian. I just, it's so <laughs> gratuitous, I just think it's, it's this Belgian, it's not even really, it's about a serial killer who's a poet, and it's just, it's so gratuitous, there's so much violence and so much slaughter, it's, its it just should never have been. Wait, what's it called? I Man want to be Bites sure Down. I got this. Man Bites dog. Man Bites, Man Bites <laughs> It's a, you know, it's an art film, it's in black
0: and white, <laughs> it should never have been. Wrong. It's a really terrible joke. Alright, well, so the other question, Joe, I wanted to really ask you is you say in your introduction that you have no patience for people who want some crazy premise, but have no interest in other different kinds of people, different yeah. races, different genders, yeah. etc. Do you want to just talk about that and how that informed this book? Well,
1: there was, there was. I mean, we, we pulled together the anthology against a background of the Hugo Awards being hijacked by some people who were angry that they felt that the awards were being artificially skewed towards diversity because a couple of women had won some prizes once somewhere, you know. Um, and they were offended, and they, they really wanted to return science fiction and fantasy to being about, you know, dragons and rockets and i just thought that that was a bewildering thing to desire and and is and is a you know is a richer fantasy than probably any of the fantasies in the book because it never existed that that a genre where science fiction was just about rockets and fantasy was just about dragons that's that those genres never existed you know um ursula le guin was writing about how nebulous gender can can be in the 60s, you know? We're talking 50 years ago now. Um, You know, um, Night of the Living Dead was a horror film that explored being black in America and, and being viewed as monstrous, you know, as a threat for being black. That wasn't like something that was done two or three years ago to appease people for diversity in 1967. You know, if you go back to you know, the forties and the fifties you see people struggling with with race and gender and what it means to be American and ha you know, um nineteen eighty four is not a novel about ray guns and rocket ships, you know. Nineteen eighty four is is about um, you know, government um Saying things that aren't true and it being a crime to say the emperor is naked and, and you know the misuse of language um, all things which which happen today I mean we you know when we talk about something like you know we, someone passes a bill called the Freedom Act, you know it's going to limit your freedoms um, you know and so so I just I, I think that I think this idea that um, there is some better path in science fiction, um, and fantasy where we didn't have to wrestle with big ideas or we didn't have to, you know, um, is delusional and, and no one should take it seriously. Should
0: we do one more? One more? One or two more? Let's do, let's do like one more and we'll wrap it up. Um, I, have, I have one more. Oh yeah, question. go ahead. Uh, I mean the, the last thing I wanted to ask you guys is, John, you talked about in the, intro, in the introduction how science fiction and fantasy is a genre that's struggled with respectability. <clears throat> Um, you just talk about what is the current state of the respectability of fantasy and science fiction and what role maybe is this both in Right. Yeah, I mean, it
2: seems like, uh, the, the time when people would see something in science fiction or fantasy and dismiss it because of that is, you know, largely going by the wayside, you know, um, and I mean, obviously, I hope, uh, the, the, that the fact that the Best American series now incorporates science fiction and fantasy will help continue to further, uh, make that something that nobody even considers, um, you know, you know, you you named all these books earlier. You know, there's like you know Carmack McCarthy and and you know David Mitchell and Fortress you know, of Solitude. Yeah, you, you know, know all these amazing books that are published as not science fiction or fantasy, but obviously include all of
1: these elements of science fiction or fantasy. If you took the science fiction or fantasy elements out of those books, there was Guro's new book. It's new book. Um, yeah, you know exactly. David Mitchell's yeah. new book. Yeah, exactly. War novel. Um, you know, I mean the list goes on and on. I just right. read this amazing book called Speak by Louisa Hall. Mm-hmm. That's about the birth of artificial intelligence. It mm-hmm. was marketed as a literary right. work. It is a literary, it's beautifully written. You know, multiple voices and right, but it's you know, it's clearly right. You know, this is something that's clearly right, anchored in the middle of the literary mainstream. But it's science fiction, right? You know,
2: and you know, I mean, it's like I think, uh like someone like me who's grown up uh, reading science fiction and fantasy, and I've devoted my life to it. It's like I've always felt that like the best science fiction or fantasy is on par with anything in any other genre. And I think the world uh, is is sort of becoming used to that idea, that it that doesn't have to be something that's, like, published in the New Yorker just to be like, oh, that's literary. It's like, no, science fiction is just as literary, can be just as literary as any other genre, and uh, and it's just as good. And I mean, I mean I think it's better, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
6: well,
3: there's, you know, science fiction and fantasy is about world building. It's yeah. about, like, the sort of the, the mechanics and the restrictions and the expectations that the reader has with a certain kind of world, whereas literary is a style. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, like, no attention to psychology, language, so, like, Those things aren't in opposition to each other.
6: They're
2: Mm -hmm. just, you know, they're just being brought together now. So, Mm. yeah, and I mean, I think the one of the things that I always uh, have liked about science fiction and fantasy is that, you know, we. There's so much more work to do to make a science fiction or fantasy story work. It's like if you write a literary story or a mainstream story, you know, you have the real world to play in, and it's like, for sure there's challenges to do that, but you have to create the compelling characters, and you have to be able to prose and everything, but a science fiction story has to do that and also build, like, an entire world for you or come up with some mind-blowing idea on top of all that, and
1: so that's why, like, you know, that's what draws me to it and why I think it's, you know, you know, on par with anything else or better. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should all debate what the World Fantasy Award, the new World <laughs> Fantasy Award should be. I say I say they should be power rings. I don't know why they didn't do it already. It'll be like it'll be like the winner for best novel is Jess Rowe, and you'll be like, oh my god, and he'll get up and he'll be like, I always wanted one, and he'll put it on and he'll disappear in front of everyone. it be it'll be so great.
4: I think all literary awards should be working chainsaws. Ooh! So because then the awards, all the award winners from a single year in genre, meet in the murder dome.
6: So wait, wait. So so on New Year's Eve. So you're joking, but I'm the, not, Shirley, the Shirley, Shirley, Shirley Jackson,
1: the Shirley Jackson yeah. rock, the yeah. runner-ups all get little rocks. And so you think when you win, you're like you go off and you're like I'm a winner, I finally won. And then the stones begin to fall. i actually you know? throw them. I don't. Know, no,
3: I
4: don't
3: we, we can get them in the
1: mail. So why? Why did you talk to me like that? <laughs> what was the what was the movie? What was the movie? You said was so great terror or something. Terror vision. What if they gave out a copy of Terror vision to everyone? <laughs> you know, it's like fast fantasy novel. Death row, here's a copy of Terror vision. I, <laughs> I would support
4: that, but really I'm, I'm all about the chainsaws. Like, mm. come on, Murder Dome. Murder Dome. <laughs> I will meet you in the Murder Dome.
6: I'll meet okay. everyone in the Murder <laughs> Dome. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm not going to throw out any ideas because that's way too controversial for me. Do we have
3: anything else on the periscope? Yeah. yeah. Uh,
5: yeah. That actually, the last question was the one you yeah. did oh, magically. Right. It was beautiful.
1: Periscope, so thank great. you. You're the winner. Yay! I
6: don't know how to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to stop.
1: Oh, it is. Swipe down to stop. Swipe down to stop. Yay. Wouldn't it be funny if I took you along
0: in my pocket? And that was our panel. And so now I'm back with John for a few more follow-up questions. So, John, we just heard from Jess and Carmen and Seanan about their stories, but who are some of the other authors in the book?
2: Uh, Well, there's people like Karen Russell and uh, Theodore Gost, Neil Gaiman, uh, Sam J. Miller, Daniel H. Wilson, Kelly Link, uh, T.C. Boyle, um, and actually Sophia Samatar has two stories in the book. And... uh, um, You know, if anybody wants to see the full table of contents, if you go to johnjosephadams.com slash best dash American, like you can see the full thing. I don't want to just read a b- bunch <laughs> of names, but I mean, that's sort of a sampling uh, it gives you some idea of um the sort of range of people that are in it. You know, there's both literary writers and um
0: sort of core genre writers. So mm-hmm. and so during the panel, we heard about Adam Troy Castro's story about a woman giving birth to a cube. Are there any other stories like that that stick out in your mind as really bizarre, crazy stories?
2: Um I don't know about bizarre crazy but um I mean that was certainly one of them uh Theodore Agassiz story is uh is very interesting it's called uh, Samaria from the Journal of Imaginary Anthropology um and it's actually a story where uh basically uh there's like an invented uh world that uh becomes real by the study of it uh so I mean I thought that was really interesting and um and unusual like i mean carmen's story is uh pretty unusual being like told in the story style of a kickstarter pitch and uh sort of a take on the orpheus myth and you know with a sister trying to follow her sister into the land of the dead um and uh so one of the events i did was uh at the Nursif uh the new york review of science fiction reading series um and so carmen and and both read from their stories and, and carmen could actually read her whole story because it was short enough but so carmen was reading her story and it's an interesting story because it's like it's um it's kind of funny in moments, but then she has like this dagger that she stabs you with right after with this like a sort of nasty uh dark thing um and so like I didn't actually th- realize how funny it was until I heard her reading it aloud, and then like as she's going along, it's like you know we're you know people are laughing and stuff, and there's those those dark moments, and then it gets like really emotional, and like she actually breaks down while she's crying and it was like and it was like perfect she was like apologizing for it, but I'm like, no, that's exactly mm-hmm. perfect, and like you know so she starts crying like we all start crying in the audience, and it was like it was, it was really great. Um, and actually, um, there's a, there's a live stream of it, um, that was recorded. So you can actually, um, you can actually go watch it if you wanted to see it.
0: All right, cool. And so like, so that's the bizarre stories in here, mm-hmm. but are there any just traditional fantasy and science fiction stories with dragons and elves and swords and anything like that? Um, or robots and right.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, a Mark story has, you know, a robot in it and, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's really a story about gender. So I don't know that's really traditional per se you know. Um, but, um, Sam Miller's story is like a sort of post-cyberpunk story. So, I mean, that's like a fairly traditional science fiction story. Um, although it has, uh, gay characters in it. So it's, um, dealing with something that maybe wouldn't have been traditionally dealt with, like in a cyberpunk story. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the stories actually deal with sort of traditional science fiction elements, but they just deal with it, like, in a, um, well-executed way. And, like, you know, the prose is just, like, really great. So.
0: Alright. So what can you tell us about the next volume of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy?
2: Well, we, we've selected the next guest editor, but, uh, Houghton Mifflin hasn't allowed us to announce who it is yet. But so we have the person. I think that person is great and, uh, is, uh, is somebody who's, who should work really well to sort of straddle the, the literary versus science fiction fantasy divide because, uh, they, they've worked in both, both sides of the fence there. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm doing all my reading now. Um, I'm actually kind of behind on it because I had to be a judge for the national book award. Um, and I'm busy doing all sorts of other things, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I expect it to be just as great as this one and I, I'm I'm having a lot of fun doing it. It's actually also the only volume that's, uh, the second volume is the only other one that's been signed up so far. So if, uh, everybody wants this to continue, uh, you know, continue being produced, uh, you should, uh, you know, go buy a copy, tell your friends to buy a copy so that, uh, Houghton Mifflin will renew it and, uh, we can keep doing it for years and years and years. Um, cause, you know, I think it's an important thing to have, um, you know, have science fiction fantasy represented in a prestigious series like this because it, um, it'll, it'll make a lot of people take it seriously who wouldn't otherwise take it seriously. And, um, whether or not that's, you know, like obviously we think that's a ridiculous thing that people aren't taking it seriously. Um, you know, I think, uh, for a lot of people, um, you know, just the fact that it's part of the best American brand is going to, um, you know, make it something that they might pick up where they would not, they wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. Of course, Joe Hill might disagree with me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'll just second what John just said. I mean, you know, I think that it's important to the future of fantasy and science fiction that it gains as much respectability in as many quarters as we can possibly do it. And I was just so excited when John said that he had scored this giant coup of getting fantasy and science fiction into the Best American series. And it would really break my heart if it stopped after just two volumes. So if you have any interest in this at all, I would just really, really encourage people to pick up these books. And otherwise, I think we're going to wrap things up there. So uh, big thanks again to Joe Hill, Sean McGuire, Carmen Maria Machado, and Jess Rowe for being on our panel. And John, thanks again for joining me. Good to be here, right next to you. (laughs) And big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Mons Wieselander in Sweden, who writes, Love, love, love. I love this show. It's intelligent, funny, and informative. The interviews always end up in a deeper and more interesting place than you thought possible and the hosts have quite strange and wonderful-sounding laughs. Five out of five stars. So, big thanks again to Mons Wieslander for that great review. And, of course, a special thank you to William Shun, Jessica Aldridge, and Bob Ellison, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So, if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And a special thank you to Matthew Gunterman, who just made a contribution via PayPal. Matthew writes, The Shun interview was superb work. I thought I'd show an additional appreciation for it. Thanks for all the value you add to my workweek commutes. So big thanks again to Matthew Gunterman and to everyone else who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for today's show, The Great Courses. Remember that if you do decide to purchase one of their classes, you should head on over to thegreatcourses.com galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more
2: information about the show